and this sublime music, which Dr. Bowles is calling cacophony. Uh, does anybody know what this is? Cacophony. I'm an engineer. I know your essay question. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's pretty. Okay, it is Haydn's The Creation, and it is Psalm 19. The heavens are telling the glory of God. So let me turn it off before it drives Bob crazy. <laughs> so part of the reason that that was what we're listening to Besides the fact that it's beautiful and that it is connected with what we're going to be talking about tonight is that Lewis had many parts of scripture that he loved dearly, but he said he thought that perhaps the best verse of scripture in the entire Bible was Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are telling the glory of God, and that when you really unpack everything that's in there, there is an enormous amount of spiritual truth. So, with that, uh, let's say a prayer and we will jump in for this week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be able to gather in your name. We thank you for this book, The Screwtape Letters. We pray that as we unpack that book this evening, that you would guide us through your Holy Spirit and that you would help us to hear things that will enable us to follow you more closely, and withstand the schemes of the enemy. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are working on standing against the devil's schemes, looking at screw tape, and we are going to be on letter 14 tonight. And as we've talked about before, this whole idea of the armor of God is a really important thing when it comes to spiritual warfare. So... Uh, Let's begin by saying this verse together. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And as we've said each week, this is a very proactive verse. We are not supposed to be waiting until we experience temptation or the attacks of the devil. We are supposed to be prepared uh, before it happens. So again, why we're studying this book and why it's so particularly relevant today, first is understanding the spiritual battle in which we find ourselves. Second, lessons on thinking Christianly and developing a Christian worldview understanding things about truth and beauty and goodness that are uh, getting lost in our culture today. Understanding the psychology of temptation, working on habits that will cultivate and deepen your faith in Christ, and then lessons on living a boldly Christian life. Not just a nominal life, not just uh, something that makes you seem like a nice person to have at a tea party, but something that is really, truly living out the gospel. So uh, we've talked about the subtext of habits that runs all through this, and I continue to be struck by how really relevant this is 
to our particular culture in this moment. There are so many people who are, for lack of a better word, trapped by their lifestyle. And all of the habits of their life reinforce values they don't really embrace, but they don't know how to get out of that. It's too threatening to think about having to rebuild your life from the bottom up. So this idea of godly habits, habits that are rooted in scripture, is <coughs> such a key concept for all of us, um, including me, to understand. And as this uh, book we've been talking about, The Common Rule, uh, I think this is great wisdom, and this could have come right from C.S. Lewis's pen because he would have agreed with us. Only when your habits are constructed to match your worldview do you become someone who doesn't just know about God and neighbor, but someone who actually loves God and neighbor. So going back a couple of letters uh, from what we started in the new year of 2020, habits to annoy the devil. Things that we can glean from these letters that if you do these things, they're the kinds of things that drive Screwtape crazy. They're the kinds of things that he's telling Wormwood at no occasion allow the patient to do any of these things because they will strengthen his spiritual life. So the first thing from letter 10, choose your friends wisely because you become your friends. You become like the people that you are with the most often. Secondly, cultivate authenticity and speak the truth in love. We live in a world where people wear a lot of different masks depending on what crowd they're in. Speaking the truth in love, being authentic, being the same person, no matter what context you find yourself in, is something that we are called to as Christians, but it's something that's rare in our culture. Thirdly, remember daily that your faith requires you to make choices. It is all too easy in the Christian life to think, once you have made a commitment to follow Christ, then you've kind of walked through the door and you've won, let's make a deal, and you don't need to do anything else. And that is not the way it works. And Lewis is very strong on this idea that's rooted in the scriptures about your choices each moment really matter deeply. And we're going to see some more about that in tonight's letter. Fourthly, live purposefully, avoiding the seduction of worldly vanities. This is such a difficult thing, and it is, uh, I think, something that all of us struggle with. We don't like to admit that we struggle with it. Uh, everyone, and it's interesting at the survey data about this, whether you are making $30,000 a year or $400,000 a year, most people feel if they could just make a little bit more, then they would be okay. And the problem is that it is a never-ending sucking sound that comes from the seduction of the world, uh, if that is what your goal is. Fifthly, cultivate an integrated life rather than a spiritual-secular split. This goes back to the mask thing. Uh, we have such an idea of being different people in different places. And then lastly, be deliberate about living out your priorities. And that sounds so obvious. I mean, you would think if you go to the trouble to write out your priorities that you would live out what those are. But the fact of the matter is if most of us did a time audit from your Google Calendar, your Daytimer, or whatever you use, and look at how you spend your time versus what you state your priorities are, um, there would be a big gap. So, letter 11. Avoid constantly surrounding yourself in person or virtually with scoffers. We talked about how Psalm 1 focuses so much on this. There is so much scoffing in our culture right now that you have to be really proactive to avoid this. And the second thing is to cultivate joy. Joy is one of the few things that we see in the Screwtape letters that Screwtape doesn't understand because there is no joy in hell. He doesn't understand it. And what makes him nuts about joy is that believers that are experiencing Christian joy, he's blinded to them. It is like there's an opaque fog around them, and he can't get to those people. So 
That should tell us that would be a very good thing to have more of. Um, we also know that music and heaven are the other things that are going to be eternal. Joy and music and heaven are all things that are going to go into eternity. And so getting involved in those is good. The third thing, plan regular times of fun that promote love, fellowship, courage, and contentment. Part of the reason this is so important in our culture is we are one of the most isolated, compartmentalized, alienated cultures in the history of the world. And people... Uh, are doing what in the 80s was called cocooning. But cocooning sounds almost positive in a way. It sounds like warm and cozy and all of that. But the thing about cocooning is that you are alone. And we are made to be in relationship with others. And so planning things to do with people is a great way to resist the temptation when you get home at the end of the day and you're exhausted and you don't want to bother to do anything except turn on the TV. If you planned things with other people, even though you may grumble enormously about it, usually we will go and do those things rather than call and say, sorry, I'm not coming. So this planning is really important, and Screwtape does not want you to do that. The next one, avoid the use of humor and sarcasm as a socially acceptable mask for cruelty to others. You've probably read a lot about the crisis of online bullying, um, all of those kinds of things. But even as adults, uh, it's not just students that do this kind of thing. You can put people down and you can do it in a way that is really cruel, but then you can say, oh, I was just joking. And somehow that makes it all okay. But Screwtape wants humor to be used that way. And then this last one, flee from flippancy, uh, learn how to recognize it, and don't allow the devil's armor to attach to you. This is the only place in the Screwtape letters where it talks about the devil's armor, the opposite of the armor of God. And what he says here is that flippancy, this refusal to take anything seriously, to joke about everything, puts up an armor plating against the work of God in your life. That if you refuse to take anything seriously and you joke about all of it, then it makes it impossible for the Holy Spirit to get through that armor. So from letter 12, be aware of your spiritual trajectory Know what direction you're heading. Reflect on whether your spiritual life is getting deeper and stronger or if it's getting more anemic and more sporadic. If you don't know what's happening, you won't be able to do what you need to do to stay on course. Secondly, when you experience dim uneasiness spiritually, pray that God would open your eyes and lead you to repentance. Screwtape talked in that letter about keeping this patient in the state of sort of dim uneasiness. That maybe something wrong, but if it is, it's not too bad. So I don't need to deal with it yet. And so you just don't ever do anything. You just feel uneasy. And what scripture would tell you is that when you experience that, you need to go to God. Thirdly, when you experience reluctance to enter God's presence, remind yourself of the truth of scripture expressed in the parable of the prodigal son. And basically what this means is that one of Satan's tools that Screwtape loves to exploit is that if you do something wrong, then you feel guilty. And instead of feeling guilt that leads to repentance, you feel guilt that drives you away from God. And you think, I'm so bad, God couldn't possibly love me. I need to punish myself. I need to stay away because he's going to be so angry with me. But that is not a concept that you find in Scripture. In Scripture, we're commanded over and over again when we mess up to immediately go to God and to repent. Um, Another thing that is so important is to invest in healthy and outgoing activities that lead to joy and to avoid isolation, very similar to what we said in the previous letter. And there's some truths about spiritual warfare from this letter. Be aware of the power of nothing as used by the devil. This is that whole idea of the man that's standing or sitting in front of a cold fire that has gone out. He's too lazy to get up to pick up a book. 
He's just sitting there, not doing anything, just wasting his time. And in that letter, Screwtape says that brings joy to Satan, to be able to steal away the precious gift of life with you're just wasting your time with nothing. And the other thing that is more most important to realize is that Satan is much more likely to rely on a slow and gradual turning away than on spectacular sin. You might remember in that letter he says, uh, there's no point in going to all the trouble for murder and adultery if cards will do. Uh, so it's sort of the idea that uh, people who are slowly picking up habits that are evil are going to become like that stone that as it goes downhill gathers more speed. And suddenly you will get to the bottom of the hill and think, how did I ever get here? So letter 13, uh, which we had last week, uh, this is such a great letter. It's a letter that is full of wisdom about repentance. So the first habit is as soon as you become aware that you have strayed, repent and return to the Lord. The second, embrace real pleasures that focus your heart and mind on beauty, truth, and goodness. And you might remember in that letter that Screwtape was infuriated at Wormwood because he had allowed the patient two pleasures. First, he had allowed him to read a book that he really liked just because he wanted to read it and not to make clever remarks to impress other people. The second pleasure he allowed him was to go on a walk in a beautiful place that was full of memories for him and to sit and sip and observe the beauty and drink tea in the midst of all of that. And those kinds of pleasures, Screwtape says, are absolute death to Satan's cause because they turn the patient's mind back toward God back toward beauty, truth, goodness, all of those things that are pointers to God. Thirdly, cultivate those pleasures and gifts that are part of God's design for you. We talked about how God has made each one of us in his image, but made each of us differently, with different gifts and talents, and that God glories when we use our gifts and we cultivate the things that he's given us. And I gave a big plug that I'll give again from the movie Chariots of Fire. If you haven't watched that in a while, get it. If you don't have it, order it from Amazon. Uh, It's such a good movie. And the scene of Eric Little, the Scottish missionary, whose sister is so worried because he hasn't left yet to go to the mission field. And he finally tells her, yes, I'm going to go to the mission field. And she gets all excited. And he says, but wait a minute. God also, God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I can feel his pleasure. And so he cultivates that gift, and God uses that in a miraculous and wonderful way to draw people to him. Fourthly, avoid seeking after worldly trends and fashions at the expense of what you truly love. And there's a really funny little part in the letter where he says he knew someone who was saved from the clutches of hell by a very strong taste for tripe and onions. And uh, the basic idea is that whenever you sort of sell your soul to try to impress other people by pretending to like things that are supposed to be cool that you don't really (laughs) like, that that chooses, when you choose that way, it makes you false to yourself. And whenever you are false to yourself, you give Satan a foothold. And then fifthly, be proactive in forming new habits based upon repentance rather than wallowing in self-absorption. We're going to get some more tonight in the letter about wallowing in self-absorption. And I don't want to hit this too hard yet because I'm going to hit it hard later. But wallowing in self-absorption might be a good description of a lot of what's wrong with our culture today. Uh, It is very interesting... (laughs) that uh, if you read very much in terms of psychological surveys, particularly surveys that are being done with people that are under the age of 30 right now, and you look at the rise in the 
clinical definition of narcissism, it really is quite striking and disturbing. Uh, one of the reasons for that is that we have, we have built sort of this false notion about what self-esteem is. And so it's kind of the idea of I am the center of the universe, and everything should revolve around me. And most of you all, like me, are old enough to know that that's not really true. And if you think that that's true, you're going to be in abject misery all of your life because no one else will realize that it's supposed to revolve around you. So it doesn't work very well. Um, So forming these new habits is really important. And then the concomitant truths about that, God loves you enormously as an individual. We are the result of a divine creator who has made each one of us uniquely in his image. And then secondly, the more you lean into your relationship with God, the more you will become truly the person he has made you to be, your authentic self. So Screwtape, of course, does not want that to happen, so he wants to separate the patient from God as much as possible. So that brings us to letter 14. My dear Wormwood, the most alarming thing in your last account of the patient is that he's making none of those confident resolutions which marked his original conversion. No more lavish promises of perpetual virtue, I gather, not even the expectation of an endowment of grace for life, but only a hope for the daily and hourly penance to meet the daily and hourly temptation. (coughs) This is very bad. I see only one thing to do at the moment. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he's really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt, and so on, through as many stages as you please. But don't try this too long for fear you awake his sense of humor and proportion, in which case he will merely laugh at you and go to bed. But there are other profitable ways of fixing his attention on the virtue of humility. By this virtue, as by all others, Our enemy wants to turn the man's attention away from self to him and to the man's neighbors. All the abjection and self-hatred are designed in the long run solely for this end. Unless they attain this end, they do us little harm, and they may even do us good if they keep the man concerned with himself, and above all, if self-contempt can be made the starting point for contempt of other selves, and thus for gloom, cynicism, and cruelty. You must therefore conceal from the patient the true end of humility. Let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion, of his own talents and characters. Some talents, I gather, he really has. Fix in his mind the idea that humility consist in trying to believe those talents to be less valuable than he believes them to be. No doubt they are, in fact, less valuable than he believes, but that is not the point. The great thing is to make him value an opinion for some quality other than truth, thus introducing an element of dishonesty and make-believe into the heart of what otherwise threatens to become a virtue. By this method, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe they are ugly and clever men trying to believe they are fools. And since what they're trying to believe may in some cases be manifest nonsense, they cannot succeed in believing it. And we have the chance of keeping their minds endlessly revolving on themselves in an effort to achieve the impossible. 
To anticipate the enemy's strategy, we must consider his aims. The enemy wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would be if it had been done by another. The enemy wants him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents, or in a sunrise, an elephant, or a waterfall. He wants each man in the long run to be able to recognize all creatures, even himself, as glorious and excellent things. He wants to kill their animal self-love as soon as possible, but it's his long-term policy, I fear, to restore to them a new kind of self-love, a charity and gratitude for all selves, including their own. When they have really learned to love their neighbors as themselves, they will be allowed to love themselves as their neighbors. For we must never forget what is the most repellent and inexplicable trait in our enemy. He really loves the hairless bipeds he has created and always gives back to them with his right hand what he's taken away with his left. His whole effort, therefore, will be to get the man's mind off the subject of his own value altogether. He would much rather the man thought himself a great architect or a great poet and then forgot about it than that he should spend much time in pains trying to think himself a bad one. Your efforts to instill either vain glory or false modesty into the patient will therefore be met from the enemy's side with the obvious reminder that a man is not usually called upon to have an opinion of his own talents at all, since he can very well go on improving them to the best of his ability without deciding on his own precise niche in the temple of fame. You must try to exclude this reminder from the patient's consciousness at all costs. The enemy will also try to render real in the patient's mind a doctrine which they all profess but find it difficult to bring home to their feelings, the doctrine that they did not create themselves, that their talents were given them, and that they might as well be proud of the color of their hair. But always and by all methods, the enemy's aim will be to get the patient's mind off such questions and yours will be to fix it on them. Even if his sins, the enemy does not want him to think too much. Once they are repented, the sooner the man turns his attention outward, the better the enemy is pleased. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Well, there is a lot of wisdom in this letter. And unfortunately, it is wisdom that is uh, hard to put into practice because it goes against so much of what we are naturally inclined to do. So a couple of habits uh, to tease out of this letter. The first one is to practice daily and hourly dependence on God. You might remember back in the beginning of that letter, he talks about what you really, what Satan wants to do is for you to feel like, oh, I've repented, now it's all over, I can go back to my own ways again. And what Screwtape is saying is that keeping the patient, keeping us in that sort of frame of mind that it's all okay now because we repented, that's what Satan would love to see. But what the patient realized in this letter, and part of the reason Screwtape is so angry about it, is that he realized that he needed daily hourly devotion and dependence on God, that anything less than that enables Satan to get a foothold. And I would commend to your contemplation, we've just got a little bit of it up here, but John chapter 15 is a beautiful chapter about this. And the context for John 15, as you probably know, is that it is the uh, discourse after the Last Supper, right before Jesus is going to the Garden of Gethsemane to be betrayed, right before his high priestly prayer. And he is sharing from his heart with his disciples. And this is the chapter that starts off with, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
And I don't know if any of you have ever been in an area where wine grapes are grown on vines and vineyards. But if you are in one of those areas, I would encourage you, particularly in the summertime, to walk through those vineyards and look what happens to any branch of grapes that is broken off from the vine. Because typically in these wine regions, the grapes are really growing in the summer. And when you are in the heat and one of those branches breaks, even if it's not broken all the way off, but it's split, you will see the grapes and the leaves just wither. Everything else can look beautiful and full of life. But as soon as it gets separated from that vine, it just weathers and dries up and can no longer be what it was intended. And that's exactly what Jesus has in mind here. And what he says is, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And abide is one of those, we think of that as, oh, that's sort of a quaint 19th century sort of word. But abide is a really rich scriptural word, and it has the same root as the word abode, which we don't use very much anymore either. But it has this connotation of home that's almost lost in our culture today because we're in such a transient society. But it's that idea of home as the place where you belong, where you are from, where your people have been from. It is the place that helps define who you are. And that's what he means by abiding in him. To be in his presence, to understand that is where your life is. And so to be continually turning to him. And so practicing daily and hourly dependence on God is so important because it's so easy, even as committed Christians, to start our day in scripture and in prayer, and then we get involved in the course of our day and we have to deal with traffic and we have to deal with the weather and we have to deal with people on the phone who are mean to us, um, whatever it might be. And our, our whole resolve of the day about belonging to Jesus is just gone right out the window and we keep charging through the day and then we get home at the end of the day and we're like, oh, what happened? And part of the the idea here is to regularly be going to the Lord over the course of the day. And that book, The Common Rule, talks about why that's so important. And it's something that used to be part of the Christian understanding. Even for those of us who grew up in the Episcopal Church with the 1928 prayer book, the 1928 prayer book assumes that you are having individual devotions and prayer time three times a day, morning, noon, and evening. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand (laughs) doing that. Um, And I'm also not going to tell you that doing that alone um, is salvific or anything. But the point of this is the more that we are connected, the better off we will be. I have a friend that used to set his watch to just beep once an hour just for this reason, and that he would pray for like 15 seconds when it would beep. And it was just a reminder throughout the day of whose he was. So I commend that to you. Uh, That is not an easy thing, but it's something that will really benefit you if you can get a hold of it. The second thing is cultivate and practice true humility, a radical focus on God and others, rather than yourself. And Jesus, in the great commandment, remember, he's in the temple uh, right before he's going to be arrested, and they've asked him all these trick questions, and then they come up and ask him another trick question. Teacher, out of all of the commandments, which one is the greatest? Well, the problem with that is there are 613 commandments in Judaism. And as soon as you say one of them is greater than the others, you have disrespected the other 612, and you will get in trouble. But Jesus goes back to the Shema, which antedated a lot of that, and he says, you shall love the Lord, the greatest commandments, you shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. And then Philippians, do nothing, nothing, (laughs) do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And this is so different from what most of us do, and it also is so different from what our culture understands humility to be. Our culture is largely bought in to what Screwtape was talking about, trying to get the patient to believe. That humility means thinking that you're a worm or you're a doormat and that you're not good at anything and that um, you're just supposed to think that you're terrible all the time. That is not what humility is. And the scriptural idea of humility is that you are spending so much energy thinking about God and thinking about serving other people that you're really not spending much time thinking about yourself at all. Um, There is a quotation that is often misattributed to Lewis, but certainly one that he could have written, that says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. Rick Warren actually paraphrased that from Lewis, but uh, it is that's very much what he's talking about here, that true humility is not spending all your time thinking about yourself. The opposite of humility would be spending all your time thinking about how terrible you are, because you may think, oh, that's so humble, but that's actually being radically narcissistic, because you are just thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about anyone else. There's a great, uh, I guess, sort of test of how true this is in that therapists that are dealing with people that are really, really depressed about themselves and their situation, very often one of the things they will encourage people to do is to go find some way of serving serving others. Because when you do that, all of a sudden you start feeling better. And I would say that is because you are hardwired by God to experience the most fulfillment and joy when you are serving him and then neighbor and yourself last. And you've probably seen that little acronym of joy, Jesus first, others second, yourself third. And notice yourself is not off down on the floor somewhere. You're still in the equation. But the the problem is that most of us are practicing yaj, which is yourself first, others second, and Jesus last. And it doesn't sound good, and it doesn't work very well. The third thing, avoid narcissism, especially wallowing in self-contempt and selfish malaise. And there's this great verse from Psalm 32. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Have any of you ever done that? I know sometimes I've done that. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. So we tend to fall into two equal and opposite errors here. One is to go down the rabbit hole into despair and spend all of our time beating ourselves up or dwelling in the past on some past mistake and just getting stuck there. Or taking a very radical other track of saying we didn't ever do anything wrong it's all those other people's fault and we spend all this time being eaten up with how all those people did this to me and the result of that is that we are fully righteous and those people are so bad but we spend so much energy there that we get stuck there and both of those are narcissism but in a different way And what Screwtape is saying is that if you can get the patient to that state, that will make everything very easy for getting him on that soft, slow, slip-sliding-away slope uh, to hell. And then fourthly, practice joyful celebration of wonder in others, in nature, in life that leads to gratitude. And... 
there's a lot of scripture about this, but this is one of the great ones. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. And that's Psalm 9. And then I thank my God every time I remember you. The joyful celebration of wonder is something that many of us have lost our capacity for. And it is commended over and over and over again in Scripture. And we've talked about this before, that one of the uh, problems that we experience today, and we so often don't think about how are we different from generations in the past. One of the ways that we are really different is that people who were born starting in the 20th century spend far more time indoors than any culture in the history of mankind. And Lewis and a lot of other philosophers who are Christian philosophers with a strong view about the transcendentals of truth, beauty, and goodness would say that is one of the reasons that we are losing our capacity for wonder. Because if you, to paraphrase Tolkien, if you wake up in an ugly, dark little apartment that's like a box and a rabbit warren, and you go out in the darkness into a little boxy car and drive through the darkness to a little boxy carol or office in a boxy rabbit warren of a building and sit there and toil away until it's dark and then you get back in your boxy little car and drive back to your boxy little home, um, you have not seen the glory of creation. You have not thought about the caress of the breeze on your cheek. You have not thought about that particular shade of azure that's in the sky at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You have not thought about the Pleiades and Orion shining up in the night sky. You have not thought about the beauty of the sunset. You have not seen the ocean wave lapping on the beach. You haven't heard the song of the bird. All of those things that we think, oh, that's the realm of the poet. But that is supposed to be the realm of humanity. And we miss out on all that. And when we experience all those things, unless you are thick as a post, it should turn your head and your heart to think, why is there all of this beauty? Where did all of this come from? And that should turn your heart toward God. And that same thing should be true when you think about other people, particularly people that are a blessing in your life. We need to cultivate gratitude for the people that God has put into our lives. And you see the Apostle Paul is such a great example of this in his epistles. He is always thanking God for people, thanking by name different people, not just people that have done things for him, but thanking God for people whose faith is strong. Um, Because just the fact that he's heard that their faith is strong encourages him. And that is something that we desperately need to recover. Because when you do that, it ultimately leads you to gratitude. And there's a great essay um, that I meant to copy, um, particularly for people that are scuba diving that really want to go deep in this. Um, but the, the little essay is called Meditation in a Tool Shed. And it's one of Lewis's lesser known works, but I really commend it to you. And sort of the very short and inadequate explanation I'm going to give you is this. Um, He's in a tool shed, and it's a shed that's made out of vertical boards. And in the shed, it's kind of dark, but in the crack between the boards, there's this beam of light coming through. And when he looks at that beam of light, it's golden, and you can see the little dust motes floating around in it. And then as he looks along the beam of light, he looks down on the floor of the shed, and you can actually see what's on the floor of the shed, where that beam is shining, although all around it is darkness. But he also realizes that you can can see not only what that beam of light is illuminating, but you can see the beam of light itself. So it's two different types of seeing. And he takes it a step further and he says, think about that this beam of light that you can see that's so beautiful and you can see what it's illuminating. Think about what must be the source from whence this beam of light is coming, which should lead you back up the beam of light to the sun where the light is coming, and then think beyond that to who could have made something like the sun. So he says this is, this is how you cultivate 
wonder and gratitude by looking back up along the beam as you see things that are beautiful looking back up to from whence they came so uh, that's a very inadequate explanation the, the little essay is much better so I commend that to you and then lastly and related cultivate a high appreciation of the doctrine of creation uh, remember at the end of the letter Screwtape says don't let the patient think about the fact that there's a creator because if you start thinking that there's a creator that there's someone who is omniscient who is creative, that is full of love and mercy, and that you were specially designed for something, that gives you a very different sense of who you are than if you think you are the random outcome of the evolution of the cosmic goo. So that, that sort of understanding about the doctrine of creation militates toward humility. Because if you think that you have made yourself that you are the self-made man, that you are your own creator, which is the primary secular worldview right now. You see that on, in so many ways, but you know, everything, including your biology, is only information. You can make yourself be whatever you want to be. And the result of that is that you can take credit for everything that you are, and you can be obsessed with yourself and your identity. But if, on the other hand... You have been created by someone who is a good and loving God, and other people have also been created by that God, and you're all in his image. It creates a very different view where your focus and thanksgiving are toward the one who created you instead of focusing on yourself. And another great thing to read, if you haven't read it lately, most people don't spend a lot of time in the book of Job. Uh, and there's some good reasons for that. But I, I will say Job chapter 38 is one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole Bible. And if you've never read it, I would strongly encourage you to do that. And this is just a little excerpt. He says, this is God speaking. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? That kills global warming. <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. But the, the, the point of that is this whole idea of God is so much more than we can imagine. Sometimes we reduce God to being kind of our celestial rabbit's foot. And um, God is the one who made everything. And if you have a strong doctrine of creation, it will take your individual situation and struggles and put them in a very different framework and perspective. And then secondly, uh, this verse that I said was arguably uh, Lewis's favorite in the whole Bible the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. So this whole idea of appreciating creation, you may think, well, what does that have to do with humility? And I would say it has everything to do with humility. If you understand that you're a creature and not the creator, if you are the clay rather than the potter, it changes everything. Amen. So a few little quotations that I just couldn't resist. Sorry. These are from Mere Christianity, not Screwtape, but they're directly relevant to this letter, and I'm just going to read them. Um, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud, and a biggest step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. 
If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. <laughs> and then this next quotation is from a chapter called The New Men, which he's talking about people who have given their lives to Christ and are following him. Already the new men are dotted here and there all over the earth. Every now and then one meets them. Their very voices and faces are different from ours, stronger, quieter, happier, more radiant. They begin where most of us leave off. They are, I say, recognizable, but you must know what to look for. They will not be very like the idea of religious people, which you have formed from your general reading. They do not draw attention to themselves. You tend to think that you are being kind to them when they are really being kind to you. They love you more than other men do, but they need you less. They will usually seem to have a lot of time. You will wonder where it comes from. When you have recognized one of them, you will recognize the next one much more easily. And I strongly suspect, but how should I know, that they recognize one another immediately and infallibly across every barrier of color, sex, class, age, and even of creeds. And that way to become holy is rather like joining a secret society. To put it at the very lowest, it must be great fun. (laughs) And the idea is that when you have really cultivated humility, what that issues forth in is a deep interest in love for God and for others. And that is a worthy goal for all of us to aspire to. So let's close with this quotation. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the deep wisdom in this letter. Lord, we confess to you that all of us struggle with pride, All of us struggle with false definitions and understandings of humility. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand our hourly need of you and that you would help us to understand that it is in putting you and others before ourselves that not only will we cultivate humility, but find joy and blessing. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.